This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. The Probably the, the more difficult question is with regard to how to then distinguish the persons if, in fact, they are unified in this really comprehensive way. Um, so I don't know, if, Austin, if I could anticipate you on that. Um, should we talk? We should talk about that. We should talk about distinctions. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Right, let's, let's hit. Uh, we could we could hit that there. Then then there's the question. Well, what makes it the case that the Father is not the Son and not the Spirit, if in fact they are of one substance and power, and if they all have the same essence and the essence undivided, it's not partitions of the essence that distinguishes them. It's not multiplication of the substance that distinguishes them. That would be tritheism. So what grounds the otherness within God of Father and Son, Father and Spirit, and then likewise Son and Father, Son and Son to the other two persons, Spirit to the other two persons, and this, this really is the challenge. The early church comes near it. The Bible actually will enable us to do this as well. The answer given historically is um, the confession says several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. There's a key word that appears in both of those phrases, relative and relations. And in fact, it is precisely in relations that the otherness is constituted, the the alterity, if you will. Um, And in particular, it's the relations of origin. The confession is very clear that God is without beginning, but there is an uh, an order of relations, not a hierarchy. I want to be careful about that, but that there is an order of relations. The Son is from the Father, and if you're in the West with us, uh, the Spirit is from the Father and the Son, so that there is a there is an order, a tax, a taxonomy of, this is a weird way to say it, fromness in the Godhead, in which that which is from another, the father, the son is from the father, um, does not in fact partition the Godhead, break it up like I have a son and he is from me and from my wife, but he constitutes a third human being in addition to the two of us. How does the son, how is the son from the father, but he doesn't constitute a second God, a second who is God, but not a second God who is God, um, a second. So how do we distinguish this? It really comes down to, um, for the son, generation, an eternal generation in particular. In fact, our confession is clear about this when it says that the, that the son is eternally begotten of the father, that begetting within the Godhead from all eternity is in fact what establishes the otherness, the distinction between the Father and the Son, which is a distinction of relation, begetter and begotten. It's a little more obscure with the Spirit, but the Spirit is also the Spirit also proceeds, 
not not outside the world proceeds from God and terminates in being outside of the Godhead. The Son and Spirit proceed from God, but they terminate within the being of the Godhead, so that they so that they are fully identical with that divinity. The procession of the Spirit is a little stranger. Um, we don't really have a name for it. Sometimes it's just called procession. Sometimes it's called spiration, which sounds like we're just trying to hide um, our ignorance because we're just taking spirit. But spirit means um, breathed forth. So, so if the sun proceeds by generation, the spirit proceeds by breath, which is a peculiar way of describing the spirit since God doesn't have lungs. Um, God is God is an immaterial um, being. But it is the, I think it is the idea of... Um, that I'm going to use Aquinas here and not not be, you know beat us up with this, but just try to get an idea of it. Um, the generation of the Son from the Father is very strange to us because the generation of things of the same sort in our experience always generates second substances of the same kind, like baby, puppies are born to mother and father dog and human babies are born to parents. And so we actually multiply beings of the kind. There's not a, there's not that sort of thing. It also happens through abscission in every act of human generation. There is and, and of any generation, whether a floral fauna or human, um, every act of generation and also angels don't participate in acts of generation. They are created. They don't generate. Um, so there is no angel that is begotten in the sense of naturally generated from a progenitor. So when when we say in, in human experience, in animal and plants, generation always includes a division of something in the material substance of the generator, an egg from a mother and 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 uh, sperm from a father, um, something from a from some some seed from a plant that was once part of the plant that is now being separated from the plant. This becomes difficult within the Godhead because God is indivisible, because God is simple, because God doesn't have parts to be broken off, so to speak. There's a mystery to this generation, this begetting of the Son in His exact image and likeness, but without a partitioning of His substance. Um, a begottenness that entails no division or change in the begetter um, is the mystery of eternal generation. But as far as otherness goes in the Godhead, I think Athanasius one time said, well, the reason that the, the reason that they're the same God is they have the same nature. But um, but what makes them not the same person? He says, um, well, the father is the father and the son is the son. And I always thought to my as a younger student, I used to think. Athanasius gets to be bishop and gets paid the big bucks for just explaining that the well the reason they're not the same is because well the father's the father and the son is the son I always thought but I, I think what Athanasius is trying to get at and which is later elaborated by by um, Augustine and Aquinas and definitely in the Protestant tradition is relation it is the relational names father and son and spirit that actually help us biblically to locate um that by which they are distinct uh, within the Godhead. Um, and so this is this is where we end up locating that distinction of the persons. Relations of origin terminating in persons not outside the Godhead, that would be creature, but persons within the Godhead, an eternal act of generation and spiration. So I, I like to say um, the one God, the infinite being who is God, actually just is Father begetting Son, and together with Son, breathing forth Spirit. In fact, that just is the one sort of threefold, three distinct person-ness of God subsisting, if we can think about it like that.
I'm not sure if that that's a that's a mouthful. That's the whole that's the the mystery of the Trinity in its most cryptic and and nascent form. I think the rest of it is sort of digging into the meaning of that of that language and being sure that it squares with what the Bible requires us to believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. That was at least a clear explanation of the mystery that is. Okay. But that's that's all I'm aiming for, Austin. I'm not I'm not <laughs> I am not in the business of getting rid of mysteries. I'm I'm in the vis- business of rightly characterizing them as best I'm able, I think. Well, amen. Amen. What are uh, some common objections or opposing views to this classic understanding of the Trinity, and how would you respond to them? I, I think we've we've mentioned the two earliest ones, which were Sabellianism. Um, that Sabellianism nowadays you you might find this in Oneness Pentecostalism. Um, I'm being very careful here. I don't mean Pentecostalism generally. I'm being very precise. Oneness Pentecostalism, uh, which is really a, a modern day form of Sabellianism. Um, Arianism would be simply though Arianism in its in its full fledged true sense would be something like you find among the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, which believe that Jesus is sort of the the greatest and most awesome creature of God who's in control of all things, but but in a in an ontologically secondary and created relation to the Father. Um, Arianism, I I, I want to be careful to. There are gradations in terms of subordination. Um, I think one threat to this traditional doctrine of the Trinity within evangelicalism, uh, not not that as we see it among Jehovah's Witnesses, are those that see a distinction in terms of um, authority within the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Spirit as if there is a hierarchical rank so that the Father is um, assigned prerogatives of will and power that the son does not have and that the son because he is son is necessarily in a in a place where he must obey the will of the father because he's the father and the son's the son and therefore because son should obey the son has to obey so that there's an there's an obligation of will for the son, namely the obligation to obey his father, that is not shared in that case by the father. And then some will go further and say that the spirit has uh, yet a more subordinated role obliged to submit his will to the father and to the son. Problems with that is that actually then allocates a distinction of will uh, away from nature so that the function of willing, whether that is intending in terms of command, thou shalt, or intending in terms of submission, I will, yes, okay. Um, Those are really distinct acts of will. This locates will outside of the divine. In other words, the divine nature would be distinct from the divine will in this case, in that the father would actually have a will that the son did not have, namely the right with the prerogative to command and obey. The same with the son. He'd have a will and an obligation that was really distinct from and, in fact, inferior to the father's. I think this really cuts against what Nicaea is talking about. When it says very God of very God, and when it talks about homoousios, ousios or substance or being would have included for them um, the power of volition. When our confession says, uh, when I say our, I mean the Second London Confession, when it says that they are of one power, this sort of new evangelical subordinationism actually has to deny that. They aren't of one power. The Father has a power, namely the power to command, and the Son is exactly the Son in this new scheme because he doesn't have that power. 
so that it wouldn't actually be an identity of power. There would be power and prerogative of volition belonging to the father that the son lacks. So I think this kind of, um, now these will still want to say, no, he's really true God, but he's true God minus the power of, give that to the father. And I think what you're doing here is you are, they, they are sort of, I think, unwittingly beginning to sort of divide and allocate the essence and I think the power is an aspect of the essence. Uh, as soon as we make up the power an aspect of the person, but not of the shared nature, um, it's hard to see how we do not end up in the next thing I'm going to bring up, which is tritheism. I mentioned in our talk earlier that tritheism cropped up briefly uh, in the sixth century and then kind of went away again because it's so obviously wrong. I think actually tritheism is back and it's back with a vengeance, but it has learned not to call itself tritheism. Um, I mean, if you're at your local church and someone comes in and says, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of modest polytheist. I believe in three gods. Um, it's just, they're just not going to pass the membership interview. I mean, probably not at my church, probably not at your church either. Um, and, and, it, and it may just be that they aren't that they aren't even conceiving of themselves as teaching tritheism. Maybe that's just an implication of their view. What is this? What am I talking about? I think this is what actually happens under social Trinitarianism. Social Trinitarianism tends to prioritize the distinction of the persons over the unity of the nature so that the unity of the divine being is really a unity that is a consequent of the relationships of the person. So that if I could put it like this, I let's just I'll just take my place of employment, for instance. I work at a university. That university is really um a single entity. It's an incorporated entity in the state of Pennsylvania. We have a we have an incorporated status. We don't talk about the universities. We talk about the university with a definite article. And yet, the university is comprised of um, board members, administration, staff, faculty, coaches, teams, and then also the material campus itself. Sports fields and dining commons and um, and faculty offices and classrooms and amphitheaters and this is all the sort of the the stuff of the one university. So the university is in fact a corporate entity, and in particular, when we talk about the persons that make it up, it's a whole bunch of humans in a contracted relationship with each other that constitute the university community. And this is a communal unity. We are all parts of one singular incorporated community that goes by the name Cairn. Okay? What, I think what social Trinitarianism does is it tends to reconceive the unity of the divine being, not along the lines of what we talked about earlier, um, a substance with its own particular act of existence, but rather a corporation comprised of multiple beings more fundamental than the whole, all of us who are at Karen, Univer Karen University is a little over 100 years ago, there's not a single member constituent currently, which was a part of the original constitution of the entity. And in fact, um, if all the people went away, if in some, you know, some vanishing moment, we all vanish tomorrow, um, I submit that um, the university itself would be, um, you know, delegitimized and laid to rest because the people that make it up just wouldn't exist anymore. So that the, the really the being of the corporation is a, is a being that depends upon the be, the members of the corporation. But if that's the case with regard to the unity of the divine being, then for God to be the one God, 
you know, I am God and there is no other hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That's a oneness of being. That's a divinity that is in fact dependent upon something more fundamental in being than itself. That's how all corporate entities are. And I think what social Trinitarianism does is it tends to treat the three persons as if they were um, members of a corporation that has a singular corporate name called Yahweh, um, or you know, or like a law firm has three names on the door. Um, I can remember one from when I was a kid, ja- you know, um, Jacoby and Myers. Um, this this could be like um, father, son, and spirit attorneys at law, all part of a single law firm. Okay, and en- a corporate entity. The problem with saying God is a corporate entity is it absolutely obliterates. Um, God's irreducibility and his absoluteness of being, because now he's not most absolute, something more fundamental than himself provides his unity. Um, It also obliterates the notion that God is simple. Um, Now God is a unity composed of parts, namely the members of it. Um, This is the problem. And what I really think social Trinitarianism is, is, I, I think that it is, even unintentionally, tritheism traveling under a different flag. Um, and that, in fact, what it does is it reduces the one God to what I, I call somewhat facetiously, God Inc., <laughs> God Incorporated. Um, and that's really the concern. God Incorporated just couldn't be the first cause of all being because God Incorporated is a cause being because all corporations are caused by the members that are part of them. Um, so if you ask today, you know, what is the biggest concern now? Modalism is a perennial concern. Arianism and, and radical subordination is a perennial concern. But if I were to say, what is my what is my biggest concern right now today with regard to forces subverting the truth of the Trinity, particularly tempting to evangelicals? Um, I would absolutely say that it's social Trinitarianism. It tends to it tends to dissolve the absoluteness of God and the simplicity of God in order to account for the threeness more, more easily. Well, before we move on to some applications of this doctrine, um, we'll ask perhaps our last extremely technical question. What is the doctrine of inseparable operations and where do we see this doctrine in scripture? All right. I'll try to be more, I'll try to be more brief in this inseparable, a, a thing acts in, in a, a thing acts in virtue of its nature. Okay, a thing a thing operates and performs functions in virtue of its nature. So my nature is a human nature, and I do human things and I human operations like um, read a book, um, comb well, yeah, comb my hair with a comb. I know I know that gorillas can you know sort of pick at their hair, but I mean I don't really have hair anymore. But when I did have hair, um, comb my hair, um, read a book, dri- uh, drive a car. Um, exchange wedding vows. These are all operations that I perform in virtue of my rational human nature. So that if you can think about in terms of operations, my operations really flow from my nature. And I don't perform operations that um, my nature prohibits to me. So I don't... um, I don't uh, perform acts of photosynthesis. Um, I leave that to the trees. That's their nature to operate that way. Um, I don't. Um, I don't bark at the mailman. Um, that's my dog's nature. I leave that to her. I mean, I suppose I could simulate my dog's behavior by barking at the mailman. Then there'd be other. Then my wife would have to call the doctor, and you know, we'd have other problems. Um, but my nature really is the foundation of my operations. 
when it comes, if we're saying that the nature of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit isn't just generically or specifically the same nature, but that in fact they are the same God, the numerically same nature, not just generically or specifically, then it turns out that all the operations of the person's odd extra, that is to say, the acts of God terminating in created products, okay? The sea, the dry land, um, and all that is there, you know, the heavens, the earth, the sea and dry land, and all that is therein, you know, the handiwork of God. The handiwork of God is, in fact, the consequence of a divine operation. And insofar as those three persons have that nature in common, and insofar as God acts only in virtue of his nature, it has to be the Father, Son, and the Spirit who are doing all the things that God does in virtue of his nature. So this is what we mean. Who created the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land, and all that is therein? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did. Not by the, and this is where we say it's common operations, not by the Father doing 40%, and then the Son and the Spirit doing 30% each of their own, and then, you know, pooling their, that's how, that's how partners in a law firm do the work of a law firm. That's how, that's how workers on a railroad get track laid. That's how, that's how workers in community with other workers produce jobs that one in and of himself can't do. When we talk about inseparable operations, what we're saying is there cannot be an operation properly divine that the father performs with regard to the world that the son and spirit are not also performing in so much as they are the same nature to get homoousios together with the father. Um, so I think we mean it like that. There's a great art. I'll just recommend an article on this. I, this is one of those Google things because I don't really remember it. It's, it's by Fred Sanders. And Fred Sanders is talking about um, the baptism of Christ Jesus and the created um, nature that is perceived there, namely the man, the humanity that is in the waters of the Jordan being baptized, there's actually um, a common operation of the persons causing that humanity to be in so much as that humanity is creature. Father, Son, and Spirit make that human nature of Jesus be in so much as the human nature of Jesus is a created nature. Um, and so while you can say the nature is in hypostatic union with only one person, in terms of the common oper that's a that's a unique terminus. The person of the son alone terminates the human nature through hypostatic union. But in terms of the operations on extra, the operations of God vis-a-vis -vis that nature, it is in fact you get to this with incarnation. Who 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 does the work of the incarnation? The son is incarnate, but the actual doing of the incarnation, making a nature and joining that nature to a divine person, is actually the common work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So Actively, the Father, Son, and Spirit incarnate or produce incarnation in so much as that is an operation performed in virtue of the divine nature terminating in something in creation. So I don't know. That's my, that's my roughest uh, answer to why we talk about inseparable operations, odd extra. Well, thank you for that. That is technical and... too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you for that. And uh, now we're going to move this conversation on to some of the applications or uses of the doctrine of the Trinity. So what do you have for applications or uses for the Christian life and for Christian worship? All right, I'm going to make one quick distinction on in your question, if I can, and I won't belabor this. I, I would distinguish um, application from use because on in one sense, and you'll, you'll know where I'm coming from with this, um, in one sense, I want to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is useless. I want to say this, and here's why I want to say it. Now I know I mean to modern Amer to 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 
to British and American ears, that sounds like sacrilege, um, because for us, things are good insofar as they are useful for, you know, some end beyond them. And much of the and much of theology is practical and useful. That is to say, it is designed to get you to something higher. What I want to suggest with the knowledge of the Trinity is that the, the knowledge of the Trinity is its own reward. In other words, it's not like the knowledge of, um, let's say, the doctrine of sanctification, in which understanding, uh, let's just say union with Christ, union with Christ is actually for the purpose of my, of my beatific vision and my enjoyment of the Trinity. So there's a certain sort of utility in union with Christ— it's, it's a doctrine which, in understanding it and appreciating it, I can better enjoy not just union with Christ, but I can actually enjoy through union with Christ, fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in beatific vision. But once we come to contemplate the Trinity as such, there's a sense in which that contemplation is not in order to help us get to a good beyond itself, an even higher good that is the highest good. So I want to say in that respect, it's useless, not because it's no good, it's useless because it's not a useful good. It actually is the summum bonum. It is the highest good. Um, to know God and to enjoy, to know God and to glorify Him uh, and enjoy, and just simply have yourself ravished in the enjoyment of beholding. Uh, that's the good beyond which nothing. So I'll say that's what I mean by it's useless yeah. because it's supremely good. Application is sort of how in contemplating God as triune, how do we come to a deeper and enriched appreciation perhaps of creation and redemption and of our fellowship with him? And I think one, one good is simply, is simply um, if knowing, if no, you know, if our fellowship was with the father through the son and by the spirit, um, then we're going to actually understand the good of our salvation. Um, the better that we understand the one into whose fellowship we have been brought. No, not as fourth members of the Trinity, but as creatures brought into the enjoyment of the Trinitarian bliss uh, that is that does belong properly to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's one aspect in terms of application. We worship better um, when we know when we know better. Um, I think another aspect of it in terms of practicality is just understanding um the implications for the Son and for the Spirit, um, in so much as the Son uh, comes through incarnation on a historic mission to save us, and the Spirit also in a kind of historic mission after Pentecost um, works in us in a unique way to secure this reconciliation and fellowship with God. Um, understanding the, dis the distinction of persons um, and the common work of the persons actually helps us to appreciate our own, the, the accomplishment and the application of salvation to us more exquisitely. The, the one who dwells in us, let's talk about the Spirit, is in fact also true God of true God. You know, the, the Lord, I think as the, nice, the, the Nicene Constantinopolitan puts it, the Lord and the giver of life is in fact the one who dwells in you. Um, that's a Trinitarian reality, but it, it should come with massive consolation and encouragement that the one who is at work in me, you know, to will and to do is in fact none other than God himself, that if if the Spirit of God dwells in me, then I am, I'm not just a, a simulated temple of God. I am in fact a temple of God, and I've got to keep myself pure because the one who dwells in me is in fact true God. But if I'm, if I'm a, if I'm an Aryan, I don't believe that. 
You see what I'm after? Because I don't believe the Spirit is true God, and I don't believe the Son is true God, I just believe they're amazing creatures. Um, and then the whole question of like, keeping myself pure as a dwelling place of God, what Paul talks about to the Corinthians, sort of um, loses all of its biblical heft. Um, the oomph of those passages is that none other than true God dwells in you. Um, so I think I think really appreciating the, um, the fact that the persons are distinct and yet are true God and are co-equal um, does have practical implications for how I perceive my participation in this fellowship with and in this enjoyment of the salvation given to me. Um, it also obviously affects the way that we sing, the way that we, the way that we pray, um, that our language is in fact shaped and brought into conformity to the language and the motifs of scripture itself. Um, and it, it causes us not to diminish divine persons, namely the Son and the Spirit, if we understand that they are with the Father, true God, and co-equal with Him. Um, it also keeps our heart from being divided. This is the problem of polytheism in general, and the problem of tritheism. And I think somewhat the problem of implicit problem of social Trinitarianism is if we're to have an undivided heart in our service to the Lord, there's a sense in which if we are to serve Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not themselves, if though distinct, if they are not undivided, do you get what I'm after? Then how can I, how can I serve God with an undivided heart? How can I serve God with an undivided heart if in fact the glory of the Father is distinct and not the glory of the Son, and it's not the glory of the Spirit? If I'm gonna, if you know the psalmist says, Oh Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. But if, if I'm a social Trinitarian, <laughs> or if I'm a tritheist, if I'm not really a Trinitarian, but I'm a tritheist, then it's, it becomes nigh on impossible to unite my heart to fear his name, because as soon as, as soon as my heart is singular in my devotion to the Father, I'm suddenly morally obligated to turn away to the glory of another, namely the Son, if he's not really the same God, homoousios with the Father. So I think, I think in terms of our singularity of devotion, um, there are serious implications with regard to not conceiving the three persons as three substances or three beings or beings of a higher rank. If I if I say that they're all true God, but that the Son is true God minus, <laughs> do you get what I'm after? Minus some power, prerogative, or will, then it becomes difficult to say that I should give equal glory to the Son and to the Spirit if, in fact, the Son and Spirit don't have equal glory within the Godhead. Um so I think those are those are some implications of a right understanding of the Trinity for our worship and for our service and for our enjoyment of God. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, if someone wants to uh, delve deeper into this doctrine, what resources would you recommend to them? Uh, I think there are I think there are a few good ones. Um, if you want an older kind of um, a Protestant a Protestant source that is. Um, really, I think, sophisticated. You, it will require some growing into um, the discussion in Francis Turretin's Institutes of Atlantic Theology is is um, quite excellent uh, in this respect. Um, I would like to say memorizing Westminster or Se Second London Confession, Chapter 2, Section 3, um, you could do a lot worse than just getting that in your sort of into your being first. But after you've done that, um, I think uh, some time with Turretin is well spent. Um, I want to recommend two other sources, a contemporary one, as an and both of these are introductory. Um, the first would be the, uh, the book, The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders, um, is, a, is a nice um, 
conservative, classically orthodox evangelical introduction to the doctrine. Um, I would place alongside of that the introduct uh, the introductory volume just entitled "The Trinity" by Gilles Emery. Uh, for the, he's a he's a French. Um, Dominican priest. Um, that's maybe a strange read for a lot of modern evangelicals. My wife and I had the privilege of meeting uh, Gilles Emery last year, and we were discussing his book. He wrote it in French, and he wrote it in French to help his Catholic uh, brother priests be more orthodox with respect to their own Trinitarianism. He said to me that the English translation has sold far better than the French original ever did. Uh, and then he and then he added to this and he says, and, and it seems that it has sold best among reformed evangelicals for some reason, reformed. Evang- and I and I said and I said, well, you know, count me as one of those reformed evangelicals who really appreciated your book. And he said and he and kind of joking, he says, well, I'm glad you appreciated it. But I promise you, I didn't even have you in mind when I was writing it. But, you know, but this is good. It's a great sort of third, fourth, kind of a discussion of third and fourth century Trinitarian orthodoxy. This is a heritage that we share in common as church Catholic with generations that went before us. And I will just say that Gilles Marie's book, The Trinity, um, is an excellent guide uh, to that end. If you want something a little larger and, and sort of sophisticated and wide ranging and a bit more uneven, but where it's excellent, it's second to none, is the Oxford Handbook of the Trinity, edited by Gilles Emery and Matthew Levering. Um, Scott Swain, who's the president at um, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, has the chapter in that volume on Calvin. Um, uh, but there are obviously early church father chapters. You'll, you'll also find uh, feminists and, and um, more liberal theologians, but they, thankfully, in my view, have a smaller voice in that volume. That volume, uh, Oxford Handbook of the Trinity, is really a fantastic resource to get into the discussion of Trinity old and new. The chapter on the fourth century, at least for me, is the single best one-stop shop for a single chapter treatment of the very significant fourth century uh, development of Trinitarian dogmas. So I will I will put those out there, everything from Fred Sanders to Gilles Emery or back to old uh, Francis Turretin. Well, James, Jimmy and I have uh, been very benefited by you coming on. We're very thankful for you taking your time. Where can people find your work if they want to uh, find more about you? I think uh, probably the the best place to go would just be the few things that I've written. Um, I've I've contributed to a book on divine impassibility, uh, a four views of divine impassibility book by IVP, um, and that would be available. I, I suppose any through any bookshop or on Amazon. Um, an earlier book, more technical, and again, if you're having trouble sleeping, I highly recommend this. I'm told it works wonders, which is God Without Parts. And this is a more technical discussion of the doctrine of simplicity. Um, a somewhat more accessible volume uh, is All That Is In God. Um, I like to say big title, little book um, that was developed out of some talks on on Confession Chapter 2 that was given at a pastor's conference. Those two books are both available on heritagebooks.org, but also on Amazon or other booksellers um, as well. I think Heritage usually has the best price uh, for those. So I think that's that's all of it. Yeah. And do you have any final encouragement to our audience as it relates to the doctrine of the Trinity? Yeah, one thing, be patient. I mean, I just I just kind of gave you the fire hose, kind of you, you know, you you guys provoked me and I just gave you, you know, what's in there. But be be patient. This this is a doctrine 
uh, of deep mystery, and it's a doctrine to be grown into. It's the it's a doctrine that that it pays dividends in terms of in terms of the wonder of the threefold you know, you know uh, person of the Godhead and the wonder of this of this crucial and central mystery of the Christian faith. But be patient with it. Um, that would be my one encouragement. But also. Um, in addition to patience, um, I guess I would encourage persistence. Uh, don't let this slip away and think, well, that's just hard to understand. Undoubtedly, that's true. Um, but but really seek seek to grapple with the mystery and also don't shirk the help given to us by earlier genera- generations who have really themselves in fidelity to the scriptures wrestled with the implications with regard to being in person um, in God. Don't, don't, um, don't ignore the contributions that they have made. Some of the books that I mentioned earlier will, will help you begin to sort of um, fraternize with those generations that have gone by that have, that have devoted so much of their life to contemplating this. So I think patience and persistence and just a promise, and this I don't even have to qualify, um, the good for your soul and the joy of simply knowing God and contemplating him in the beauty of the truth of his being um, is a reward all its own and unique. Amen. Amen. James, thank you so much for taking all this time to discuss this very important topic. Austin and Jimmy, I really appreciate you guys having me on. And to our audience, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.